thank you. It is good to be back with you guys. I really enjoy uh, coming here and being with you. And yeah, if you're ever in Lincoln, or if you come down to Lincoln for college or whatever, look us up. We'd love to uh, serve you guys and have you a part of the family of faith uh, there if you if God leads you that way. Yeah, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, excited to be a part of the conclusion of this series. You guys don't really know me that well, outside of just seeing me show up a couple times a year uh, to teach, which I am honored to do, but a little background about me. I grew up in North Carolina, um, southern boy, going to a Baptist church, and growing up in the Baptist church, I know I don't look that old, but I am 41. I turned 41 yesterday, actually. It was my birthday. So I'm getting up there in years. Uh, back in the day when I was growing up as a teenager in the Baptist church in North Carolina, we used to go to summer camps. We used to go to tent meetings, like revival meetings. And at those revival meetings, I'm going to tell you that evangelists that I heard growing up when I was about your age would try to do anything possible to get people like you to listen to them and respond to the message of God. And when I say anything possible, I mean that. Like anything possible. As a kid, I saw karate demonstrations. I saw, you know, guys trying to rip phone books in half. I saw all kinds of weird musical contraptions. I heard the most intense, scary stories of all time, literally preachers trying to scare people out of hell and into heaven. I've personally been saved at least 73 times <laughs> going forward. No, actually just once, but I have a lot of fire insurance uh, after hearing a lot of those kinds of messages. Um, I haven't seen it all, but I know I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot in my days going to revival. But I'm going to tell you something. I've never seen what happens in Jonah chapter 4, and neither have you. Never seen what happens in Jonah chapter 4. In fact, I think what happens in Jonah chapter 4 is entirely unprecedented. To start with, I don't think any of us have ever seen or even come close to witnessing what happens in Jonah chapter 3. But you guys remember that in Jonah chapter 3, an entire mega city repents at the message of God. An entire megacity, and just think about that. It's uh, shocking almost to think about that. An entire megacity hearing a prophet, a foreign prophet, preach a message from God and believing it's true. They responded to it. And not only spiritually, it seems, they responded physically. They responded to the message of God. We've never seen anything like that. But certainly, what happens next? You guys heard last week about Jonah's response. Remember that I said just a moment ago, the evangelists I grew up with, and most evangelists that you will find, are trying to do everything they can to get people to listen to them, right, and respond to their message. It seems that in this text, Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is ticked about their response. This entire mega city hears his message and responds to it, and he's mad. Think about that. It would be like you guys giving a speech at a coliseum and getting a standing ovation, 
and getting ticked about it. Just think about it. That moment is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. So as I've tried to imagine what Jonah was like in that moment, I've imagined him walking through the streets, yelling out this message, but doing so very dispassionately, right? Trying not to make eye contact, trying not to get anyone's attention. Like he wasn't really trying to do the work of an evangelist. Um, Jonah didn't have like a sidekick musician that was going to whip out a keyboard and start tickling out some sweet tunes. He didn't post his message on, you know, Ninevite YouTube or something like that. He wasn't trying to get followers. He wasn't trying to be seen. He wasn't trying to be heard. He was trying to show up and do his job because he had to, right? God kind of forced his hand. He wanted to show up and lead. It seems, my friends, that Jonah, his prayer was to be ignored He wanted to show up and be ignored. His greatest fear was to be heard. Now, this is interesting. Perhaps you've talked about it already, but this is interesting for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons why it's interesting is because it helps us understand why in chapter 1 he ran away from that call. You see, like I always thought, that the reason Jonah ran away from God's call of him to go and preach this message to the Ninevites was because he was scared of the task, right? Perhaps you guys have already heard about what the Ninevites were like. Like, they were a brutal people. I always thought that, man, I can sympathize with Jonah. Like, if God called me to go do that, I would be scared too. Like, I would want to run away too. Because I might show up and get dropped on sight. Like the prophet from Israel is here, drop him on sight. Like my head might be on a, like a a spike outside the city gates before I can even finish my opening prayer. But that's not what scared Jonah. My friends, that's not what scared Jonah at all. What scares Jonah, hear me, is that they might actually listen to him respond to the message of Yahweh and that God might actually show them mercy. This is what scares Jonah to death. And in fact, you can see it so clearly in your text. Look with me at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. He was angry. He was absolutely ticked that these people responded to his message. And know with me what he says in verse 2. This is why. He wasn't scared to come to Nineveh for his own safety. He was scared to go to Nineveh because he knew God's mercy. Check it out, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, by the way, this is not a typical prayer. He's upset at God. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why. This is the reason why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, 
and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why. I just want to say to you guys, this is point number one if you're taking notes. Jonah's anger is revealing. Jonah's anger is revealing. Now, as students who are studying a text, it's very clear that the author here is emphasizing this theme of anger, for you can find the word in verse 9. You can find the word twice in chapter 4 and verse 1. You can find it in verse 4. And then you find it again three times in verse 9. The theme of anger is palpable. And I again want to just say, anger is revealing. And by the way, your anger, think about it with me, your anger is revealing. It's very revealing. As I was thinking about this, I've, I've uh, often thought of little kids, right? You perhaps have seen little kids melt down in a grocery store, right, and throw temper tantrums because they wanted a box of cereal and mom said no, right, and they were ticked about it. Their anger is revealing. It's revealing what? It's revealing that they're little kids, right? They're immature. They don't know how to handle a no. They don't know how to handle disappointment, and that's why they need to be trained. Their anger is revealing of their immaturity, but our anger is also revealing, if we're honest, right? Our anger is revealing. I have three kids that I love. They're fantastic. They're great kids. Uh, but sometimes they bicker and argue and fight. And there have been many times in which I've been sort of like vegging out on the couch. I'd be watching a game or something like that. And I've said to my bickering kids something like, why can't you guys just get along? Right? And really I'm just kind of ticked because they're annoying me. My anger in that moment is not a righteous indignation. It's not righteous anger like I'm upset that they're breaking the law of God and not treating one another correctly. Really, my anger is, why can't I just get some peace and quiet, right? Our anger is revealing. Think about that as we continue to study this text. Jonah's anger is revealing in at least three ways. Jonah's anger is revealing in what he hates, what he loves, and what he lacks. What he hates, what he loves, and what he lacks. Number one, Jonah's anger reveals what he hates. Or perhaps better stated, who he hates. Jonah hates the Ninevites. Jonah despises the Ninevites. The prospect that God might show these guys mercy that's what keeps Jonah awake at night. That's what is driving him crazy about this entire story. And what this amounts to, my friends, is pure hatred. Now, at one level, this is kind of understood. For even as I referenced a moment ago, the Ninevites were a brutal people. They were kind of known for that, known for their brutality, known for uh, their lives that were anti-God, antithetical to anything that Yahweh would stand for. 
Moreover, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which at this time in Jonah's day was the arch enemy or arch rival, if you will, of the nation of Israel. In fact, it would be the Assyrian Empire that would wipe out the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. So in one way, it's understandable to think about Jonah's dislike of them, to think about Jonah's anger towards them. It's sort of understandable. But on another level, please track with me, on another level, this is also contradictory to what Jonah knows. So question, what does Jonah know? Think about it, guys. You've been studying this book. You've already seen in chapter 2 that Jonah has quoted a psalm. In this very text, the verse we just read, Jonah is quoting Exodus 34. What does Jonah know? Undoubtedly, Jonah knows very well as a prophet in Israel. He knows the Abrahamic covenant. He knows that it is God's plan to bless all nations, including Nineveh, including the Assyrians. God intends to bless all nations through the people of Israel. Jonah would have understood the Imago Dei, that every individual, every human being is created in the image of God. Moreover, Jonah knows, Jonah knows the mercy of God. In fact, this is what instinctually prompted Jonah to run away from this call. He knows about God's mercy, but just think about this with me for a moment. In Exodus 34, perhaps you guys talked about this a little bit last week, but in Exodus chapter 34, where Jonah quotes this statement that God makes about himself, being slow to anger and abundant in mercy. The context of that passage of Scripture in Exodus 34 is when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. In that moment, do you guys remember what was going on down below? Anyone? Throw your hand up and tell me. Anyone? Well, all right then. I'll tell you. While Moses was receiving the law on top of Mount Sinai, in this moment, Moses asked to see a glimpse of God's glory. He reveals his glory to Moses. But it's all in context of what the people is building for themselves a new guy. They built for themselves a golden calf. Why? Because they were tired of discontent with this Yahweh who had just, by the way, broke them out of slavery in Egypt, split the Red Sea, and brought them safely to Mount Sinai. They so quickly forgot all of that and grew impatient, started to complain, and then built for themselves a new shrine, something else to worship. It's in that context that Moses goes back up the mountain and intercedes with God for the people. There on top of the mountain, then God reveals a glimpse of his glory and says to Moses, I am mercy. I am full of compassion, slow to anger, 
and abundant in loving kindness. Now think about that. Guys, think about this. What does Jonah know? What does Jonah know? Jonah knows the mercy of God. Jonah knows the abundant grace of God. Jonah knows that his own people and he himself have received oceans of grace. They have received oceans of mercy. God's grace and God's mercy has flooded over the people of Israel, a people that did not deserve it, that did not deserve it. But Jonah still compartmentalizes the people of Israel as people who are, in a way, somehow deserving of that, while the Ninevites are not. His anger in this moment at God's mercy towards Nineveh is revealing who he hates. He despises the people of Nineveh in a way that contradicts everything he knows to be true. So his anger reveals what he hates. Number two, his anger reveals what he loves. You're going to see this even more as we walk through verses 5 through 11. But this anger that Jonah has towards Nineveh reveals what he loves. Or again, perhaps better stated, who he loves. Jonah is undoubtedly a patriot. He loves the nation of Israel. He's a prophet of Israel. Perhaps in this moment in history, Jonah is a very popular prophet. The only other time he's mentioned in the Bible is in the context of Jonah making another prophecy about the borders of Israel being expanded. So perhaps Jonah is kind of a liked prophet in Israel. He's kind of a popular dude. Maybe he's on a billboard or two, all right? His prophecies go well. Undoubtedly, Jonah's a patriot. He loves Israel. But really, really, guys, Jonah's a narcissist. Really, Jonah loves himself some Jonah. Jonah loves himself. Jonah is infatuated with himself. He is utterly self-absorbed. I think that Jonah can't stand the thought of going back to Israel as this popular prophet, going back to Israel, having been the mouthpiece for God's mercy falling on their enemy. Jonah wants nothing to do with that. And why? Because Jonah loves himself. Jonah is deeply into himself. Now, again, my friends, think about your own life. What does your anger reveal about you? Does your anger reveal a righteous love for God or a righteous love for other people? Or does your anger typically reveal self-absorption, a love of your own comfort? A love of everything going right or well for you. Jonah's anger reveals what he hates. He hates Nineveh. It also reveals what he loves. He loves himself. And this is so evident in verse 3. Check it out in your text. Therefore now, Jonah says, O Lord, please take my life from me. 
for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, let me read that again with a little different expression. See if you can pick up on some nuance. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Just think about it. I mean, this dude's the drama queen right now. You know what's, what's happened? All that's happened is that God has sent him to these people. He's preached, as our brother said, an eight-word sermon. And everyone responds. Everyone is like, yeah, what that guy said is true. Everyone responds. They repent. And Jonah goes, it's better for me to die. Just think about it. Totally self-absorbed. A total drama queen. No reason for that. No reason for that whatsoever. Unless Jonah is just totally into himself. His anger reveals what he hates. It reveals what he loves. He loves him. Thus it reveals what he lacks. His anger reveals what he lacks. This is very serious. I, I again beg you to continue to track with me. Though Jonah has some good theology, as evidenced in verse 2, Jonah lacks a true understanding of and perhaps a saving relationship with God. Jonah has some good theology, but he lacks a true understanding of and perhaps even a genuine relationship with God. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jonah knows right thinking, knows right truth. In fact, his instincts are good. You might even call them gospel-centered. Jonah, when he gets this commission from God to go preach this message to Nineveh, he instinctually knows that God intends to show them mercy. And by the way, this speaks so much about the heart of our God. He tells Jonah to go preach this message of judgment. And Jonah himself knows, he knows that when God goes to preach a message of judgment, really it's grace, really it's mercy, because he's holding out another opportunity, another opportunity for men to repent at the preaching of the word of God. Jonah knows this truth, but what his heart believes betrays where he's actually at. Where his heart is betrays what he actually believes, my friends. The real state of his soul. Thus his attitudes reveal a fundamental disconnect between what his head knows and his heart believes. And again, I just, I want to slow this down with you because it's very likely that there are some in this room right now, this is exactly where you are. You know the truth, okay? I grew up, by the way, I went to a Christian school just like this one. Just like this one. And I, I love the fact that you're here. I love the fact that I went to a school like this one. But one of the things that I know is present, I know is present, is that there are people here that are going, yeah, I know the truth, but it's, it's not here. Like, nothing's going on here. And I'm just asking you to pay attention. I'm asking you to allow the Spirit of God to speak. 
into your heart and into your mind. Perhaps you need to see yourself in Jonah and hear God's message of mercy to you. Jonah's attitudes and his actions here really reveal where he's at. He knows the right stuff, but it's not here. Because, and this is fundamental to the message today, my friends, because genuine knowledge of God leads to humility and love, not anger and hate. Genuine knowledge of God will lead to humility and love not anger and hate. Thus, what we've seen thus far is that fundamentally Jonah's anger reveals his utter hatred for Nineveh, a hatred that is incompatible with a genuine understanding of God revealing of Jonah's real state, where his heart is really at. Now, let me just pause right here and apply for a moment. Having considered Jonah's hatred, is there anyone that you hate? Think about it. That might sound a little strong. Is there anyone that you despise? Is there anyone that you would rather see judged than to be the recipient of grace? Think about it. Maybe it's someone who has wronged you in the past, or is maybe even presently wronging you. And that pain is real. Please hear me. That pain is real. And I don't minimize it. But perhaps in your heart right now, there is residing this kind of wedge of hatred, wedge of bitterness, and a seething desire in your heart, in your mind, to see them pay, to see them grovel. Perhaps in your heart and in your mind you're going like, I, I cannot fathom them getting mercy. Maybe it's someone that's wronged you or is currently wronging you. Maybe it's just someone that you dislike. They just rub you the wrong way, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they interact. You just kind of despise them. Think about it. Think about it. Perhaps it's a group of people. Maybe someone has begun to teach you that this group of people or that race of people were less than you. Perhaps that's taken root in your heart or in your mind. Or perhaps it's some sort of political figure. We live in a very polarized age. Whoever it is, please hear me, whoever it is, if you have someone in mind, if something is kind of circulating in your heart and in your mind right now, and you are saying, you know what, I would much rather see them go down, like I would much rather see them go down in flames, like on live TV or something, than I would see them get mercy. Perhaps God is speaking to you through this text. This is exactly where Jonah is. Jonah's like the original son of thunder. He wants God to just rain down fire. That would make him so happy to see these people judged, to see these people pay, to see these people wiped off the face of the planet. 
And maybe you were saying, you know what, Dustin, I don't need to see like fire come down. But I would like to see them pay. Just allow the Spirit of God. Allow the Spirit of God to bring home the truths that he brings home to Jonah in these next few verses. Check out your text, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? That's a rhetorical question for you as well. Is it right? Is it really right for you to be angry? Jonah, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. So in this moment, God is sort of setting up a classroom, and he's about to take Jonah to school. What he learns here is so good. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah is still, in his mind and heart, harboring thoughts that maybe God will go ahead and punish them. Maybe God will eventually go ahead and rain down fire on them because I just know they're not really repentant. I know that. That's what Jonah's thinking, undoubtedly. He's watching. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, pause again right here. Note with me the language of appointed. The language of appointed. If you're taking notes and you write down the word appointed, write down next to it or an equal sign next to it or parentheses and put sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is all over this book. It's all over this passage. God is using events in nature. He's used a storm, hurled it down there. He's, he's used a fish, right? And now he's going to use a plant. God is clearly sovereign over the events of even nature. And God's about to teach Jonah a lesson through it. So he allows this plant, he creates this plant to come up over Jonah. And verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Pause right here. Here again, if you are studying the text, you will know with me that the author is intentionally linking words. He's linking the words or the language of verse 6 to the language of verse 1. Why? Because it draws out for us a beautiful parallel. Jonah is exceedingly glad about the plant. What is he exceedingly angry about, verse 1? Think about it. This parallel is huge. He's exceedingly glad about this plant. A plant, guys. You guys track with me? A plant that comes up over him and gives him a little shade. He's so happy. So happy, like to his core. He's so happy about the plant. What is he so to the core ticked about in verse 1? That God would show these people mercy. What is God doing? In this classroom, God is revealing Jonah's heart to him. So Jonah is pumped. He's so excited. It's like Christmas Day because of the plant. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm 
that attacked the plant. So God's appointing something else. He is sovereign. This worm attacks the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, maybe I'm being a little facetious, but drama queen, right? This prophet of God, he's a drama queen. I'm going like, what is this, Hannah Montana or something? Think about it. This is the second time? Second time? Jonah says, it's better for me to die just because the plant withered and I'm hot. I'm so angry. Life is so tough. But God said, verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, the author is giving us a clear parallel. He's already asked that question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Jonah doesn't get it. Now, verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah, you pity the plant. You did nothing. Jonah, you did nothing to make that plant grow. You did nothing to make that thing come up over your head. It came up in one day, went down in one day, and you're so angry about it. You're so pitiful about it. He says, should I, should I not pity Nineveh, show compassion, heartfelt concern for Nineveh, a city with 120,000 persons? Perhaps this 120,000 persons is just a reference to the children. Perhaps those who don't know their right hand for their left, from their left. Perhaps this city is filled with many more people even than that. But God says, should I not pity them? And he goes on to say, and even much cattle. Some people find that this is kind of a humorous touch that God adds at the end of this equation. I actually think it's, it's not humorous at all. I actually think that God is sprinkling in like salt to the wound conviction on Jonah's heart that like you don't care about the people, but maybe you'll care about the cows. Maybe you'll care about them. What is God doing? God's revealing Jonah's heart. And what I want you to see and just immerse your mind in for a few moments is this. Jonah's anger is revealing, but God's mercy is also revealing. 
Friends, God's mercy is also revealing. It's so abundantly revealing in this entire story that God's mercy goes after people. It's his disposition to go after people. He doesn't, first of all, give up on his enemies. He relentlessly pursues Nineveh. Even these Assyrian people who are the enemy of the people of Israel and therefore an enemy of God, God still pursues them. It's phenomenal to think about. They are wicked. The case isn't unclear against them, but God continues to pursue them. And by the way, this is wonderful news, is it not? For God has pursued us as well. In a very real sense, you and I are Ninevites. You and I are not of the people of Israel, of the nation of Israel. Can you and I just say amen together that God has pursued us? Amen? God has shown us abundant mercy and grace. God doesn't give up on his enemies, but also God doesn't give up on his children. He doesn't give up on Jonah. Rather, he relentlessly pursues Jonah. He pursued Jonah while he was on the run, running away from God. God went after him with the storm. God went after him with the fish. God went after him with a plant and with a worm. God is going after Jonah's heart. And my friends, God is coming also for your heart as well. I think we can just rejoice in the fact that our sins, though there are many, his mercy is more. Amen? His mercy is more. So God's mercy is revealing, revealing of the beauty of his character and his disposition towards fallen men to go after his enemies and also to go after his children. But God's mercy is also revealing in another way. It's a point we, we've already made, but I, I want to further drive this home. God's mercy here reveals and exposes the folly of Jonah's hate. So in contrast to God's infinite mercy to that pagan city and the pitiful prophet, Jonah only has compassion on one thing. Jonah only has compassion or pity for a plant. And the way God allows this story to unfold, it separates those two in stark relief. Like Jonah's pity is indeed pitiful. It's pitiful in comparison to God's compassion, not only for Nineveh, but also for Jonah. And my friends, ultimately what God is showing us is that this is incompatible, completely inconsistent with Christianity. It's fundamentally incompatible with the things of God. God is saying, Jonah, you love this plant, and maybe you'll pity the cows, but you have no compassion on these people who are made in my image. I just want to say to you guys, failure to comprehend the love and mercy of God can lead us, amazingly, can lead us to value plants over people, can lead us to value animals over children. 
failure to comprehend the love and mercy and grace of God can lead us to an all too uh, common plague on Christianity. And that is this. Really, this is the fundamental message of Job. Outside of the sovereignty of God. Fundamental message is this. We have such a tendency to love God's grace, to love God's mercy, so long as it's flowing in our direction. And we have such a tendency to crimp it off or to shut it off entirely when it comes to other people. We have such a tendency to love God's mercy and grace so long as it's flowing in our direction, but loathe the thought that it would go to them, that it would go to him, that it would go to her. And this spirit, this Jonah spirit, can so easily live in all of us. Jesus called it out in his day. Perhaps you will remember the story of two debtors. Jesus told about a guy who was in debtor's prison, and he owed, just for sake of illustration, let's say he owed the king 10 million bucks. But when he couldn't repay it, the king said, you're forgiven. I'll forgive you, man, all your debt. And he was pumped about that. He leaves and then goes find and, and finds a guy that maybe owes him a thousand bucks. Right? In comparison to 10 million, it's like nothing. It's still something. But in comparison to the 10 million, it's, it's like nothing. Right? But he's that guy remembers the thousand bucks he's owed. He takes that guy and drags him to the king. He drags him before the authorities. He drags him to debtor's prison. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, that guy does not understand forgiveness. This guy does not understand grace, i.e., he's never really been forgiven. Think about this. He's never really been forgiven. Because you can't be forgiven that much. Guys, hear me. You can't be forgiven that much. And then go out and hold that debt, that smallish debt over someone else. It just doesn't work. It doesn't compute. It's inconsistent. But yet we try to do it all the time, don't we? The reality is this. My friends, whether you know it or not, or receive it or not, you and I, Stand underneath a waterfall of grace today. A waterfall of grace. I mentioned going to camps earlier. Uh, I went to this camp in North Carolina as a kid that had four amazing waterfalls. And the fourth one was the most amazing of the waterfalls. It was an incredible waterfall to go hike to. And when we would go on these hikes, uh, some of us guys would take a little bottle of shampoo and we would go with this bottle of shampoo up underneath that waterfall, and we would start, like sort of lather up, not because we particularly wanted to be clean, but because it was just kind of fun to see how quickly that waterfall would wash us clean. It was incredible. There was so much powerful water coming off that mountain that you could get all lathered up, right, all sudged up, and step underneath that waterfall, and like in seconds, you were totally squeaky clean. Literally. I'm not talking like 30 seconds. I'm talking like two seconds. You would go, and you're just squeaky clean. 
And, and that's how we are. Guys, girls, that's how we are underneath the fountain of God's grace. Underneath, I said earlier, an ocean of God's grace. We are standing under a waterfall, but when we are withholding forgiveness, when we are holding bitterness, when we are holding hatred in our hearts towards other people, you know what we're proving? What we're proving is that we're not actually standing underneath that waterfall, not in our perspective. We're standing underneath a tiny little trickle. A tiny little trickle. And when I'm standing underneath a tiny little trickle, I can pick other people apart, right? But if I'm standing underneath a waterfall, if I am totally overwhelmed by the grace of God to me, it's nothing for me. It's nothing for me to be able to extend that grace to other people. My friends, I'm not saying it's easy. Please watch me. Watch me. I'm not saying it's easy to forgive someone who's wounded you deeply. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying the only way you can is to get up underneath that waterfall. And when you're underneath that waterfall, when you are mesmerized by the grace of God and how much he has poured out his love and kindness on you, then and only then are you able to just offer grace freely to everyone else, to offer compassion, love, kindness to everyone else because you are overwhelmed, totally overwhelmed by the grace and compassion God has shown to you. This is the message of Jonah. My friends, that's the enduring message of Jonah. God says as he closes, you pity this plant. Should I not pity them? The connection for us is very simple. Yes, we should. Yes, we should. We have all been shown unbelievable grace. Now, the question for us this morning to wrap this up in light of the gospel is how can we get up underneath that waterfall? We can because we have a greater prophet. I know we're short on time. I apologize. Um, so I won't read this, this entire text, but in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus picks up on this story of Jonah and not only proves its historicity, its authenticity, but he uses it to make a very important point. I won't read the entire text, but just, just grab this. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's predicting his death and resurrection. Verse 41 the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Think about that statement. The, the people of Nineveh that repented, they will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. How is it possible for your heart to be so radically transformed and radically changed that you might freely extend forgiveness 
that you might freely extend love to other people and a strong, urgent desire that they would be saved, that they also would understand the mercy and compassion and grace of God. How is it possible that my heart can be so changed to live that way? It's possible because a greater prophet has come. Amen? Let me try that again. You guys can say amen with me. It's possible that God could change your heart because a greater prophet has come. Amen? Because Jesus came. Consider this quote. So apropos for this book. One writer puts it, Jonah only cared for his nation, but Jesus cares for all nations. Jonah ran from Nineveh, but Jesus ran from heaven to come here. Jonah went to Nineveh unwillingly, but Jesus came to earth willingly. Jonah had a heart of anger, but Jesus had a heart of love. Jonah refused to dwell with the Ninevites, but Jesus chooses to dwell with sinners. Jonah waited for his enemies to be punished upon the hillside, but Jesus was punished for his enemies. Jonah spent three days in a fish, but Jesus spent three days in a tomb. Jonah spent 40 days hoping for their destruction, but Jesus spent 40 days proving his resurrection. Jonah sat up on a high place on a little throne, just hoping everyone would be destroyed. But today, Jesus is high and lifted up and exalted on a high place and sits on a great throne inviting us all to salvation, not damnation, to forgiveness, not condemnation. Jesus Christ has lavished us with grace, rightly understood. It brings us to our knees. It brings us to our knees to say to him, God, I repent of my sin. I repent of my sin and I am so grateful, overwhelmingly grateful for your mercy to me. And those that get on their knees underneath that waterfall of grace are able then to extend that grace and mercy to other people. God, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you for how you've displayed it in the book of Jonah. I pray that as these young people contemplate the message of this book, I pray that you would help them to see your sovereign compassion. And I pray that you would overwhelm them with that grace and compassion to extend it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.